and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, and unfortunately, my colleague and co-host Tracy Alloway is out this week, so uh, you'll have to just listen to me solo. Uh, but I'm excited about today's conversation because it's a follow-up to one of our episodes that we did a few months ago. So if you recall, in mid-October, Canada legalized recreational cannabis that coincided with a boom and stocks uh, relating to cannabis. Lots of interest in this, but still so much uncertainty about how the market would actually play out and who would really make money and what kind of margins there would be and just what kind of rollout there would be in general of the operations of uh, legalized recreational marijuana in Canada. And so if, a few months ago, we talked to Craig Wiggins. He is a part of a trio of analysts known as the Canalists. They have a popular Reddit page called The Canalists, where they do pretty serious, deep-dive financial analysis of the publicly traded cannabis companies. They have a very big uh, following that's grown over time, and they do events and podcasts and other stuff. Really, become they've become the sort of go-to destination for serious analysis of these companies. And so we talked to Craig right before the legalization, right before uh, recreational is about to come out. And so we wanted to uh, go back and talk to Craig again about what he's learned and what he's seen in the first uh, few months of the recreational market in Canada. And so we have him back now. Craig Wiggins, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I hope I hope I'm not the reason Tracy didn't show. <laughs> I, it, you are. I said, Tracy, we're going to have Craig back. And she's like, oh, I got food poisoning last night. Suddenly I can't do it. No, she wishes she could do it. But due to the uh, time zone, she's in Hong Kong. She couldn't make it this time. Um, oh, there you go. So what's your overall? You know, you warned a lot about a lot of different things when we talked about the market and the impending legalization of uh, recreational and the fact that, um, you know, there's just all kinds of issues with the supply chain, the sort of the separation between the distributors and the retailers and the provinces putting themselves in the middle. What have you seen so far? How smooth has the rollout been? Uh, well, I'm not sure the age of your listeners, but the term gong show would probably be uh, apropos for how adult rec has been rolled out uh, throughout Canada. Okay, so uh, I, I take that as a, a negative. Uh, what has been the biggest problem so far? I, I think there's a, a multitude of problems and uh, we have no shortage of people pointing fingers at each other. In Canada, we have two distinct streams with respect to cannabis. We have the medical cannabis right. and we have the adult rack. The medical cannabis is all done online and shipped directly from an LP, a licensed producer who's licensed by Health Canada, direct to patient. Or Shoppers Drug Mart, Canada's largest drugstore chain, has gotten involved in distribution of cannabis, but not from the retail stores, again, all online. The rec side, each province in Canada is responsible for rec distribution. Most of them, I think nine out of the 10 major provinces, all elected to be the wholesaler of cannabis. And some of them elected to also be the retailer of, of cannabis. And each province is different. So we really have a patchwork of different uh, models throughout Canada. 
And what we've really seen is the, the, the theme that we've heard from the provinces who are strapped for inventory, so much so that the Quebec government, who's actually running their own retail stores, have closed their retail stores Monday through Wednesday because wow. there's not enough product. Uh, New Brunswick's a, a similar uh, situation. Alberta stopped issuing new retail licenses. In Alberta, it is private distribution even though the government uh, sees the need that they, they have to receive the product before distributing it to the retail. So it's really been a patchwork. And most of those provinces have not done a, a very good job of their retail rollout, whether it's private or, or government run. That's just what I was about to ask. Of the two main models, neither one is per looking particularly good right now. Yeah, and that's where some of the finger pointing comes in. A lot of the provinces said the LPs, the licensed producers, overpromised and underdelivered. And there was a lot of overpromising going on. Uh, the term funded capacity was uh, bandied about greatly in the industry because it Just really to be clear, before you, when you say the LPs, these are the, the producers, the licensed producers whose names investors have come to know, like a uh, Canopy Growth or an Afria. Yeah, they're okay. cultivators. Yeah. They're primarily cultivators. The canopy has gone into the retail side. Uh, Aurora has purchased uh, an interest in a retail operation. But yes, the LPs are are the ones that are producing, cultivating, and then shipping the product, whether it, it is medical or whether it is uh, adult rack. Same distribute, same growers feeding two different streams. So if there's a shortage of supply, and the LPs haven't been able to deliver on what they promised. Does that, in your view, speak to some fundamental problem? Or is this just like, look, maybe there's still growing pains. They didn't really appreciate the scope of the demand for it. But, you know, in a few quarters and a few years, as they continue to uh, build out their grow facilities, that should stabilize. Yes and no. The quality that's coming out, there's only two form factors that are presently allowed in Canada. One is flour, bud, and the other is oil. And it, it's oil that has, has been provided in a diluted uh, carrier oil like MCT or, or olive oil or something like mm -hmm. that. So there's only presently two legal form factors in Canada. Uh, the edibles, right, uh, edibles in form factor 2.0, if you would, the... Uh, Discussion period just ended last week, if I remember correctly, and those new formats will be out by October of this year. But the the bud side of the equation, there is some pretty scraggly looking uh, flour that's that's getting delivered to customers that are used to if they're they're from the black market or what we've been calling lately the legacy market is not nearly as good. Hmm. So th there are some premium flour out there, no question about it. There's some gorgeous flour out there, but there's a lot of flour that's coming through that uh, we see pictures posted on Twitter that just do not look appealing. So one of the questions that I had and that I've been really curious about prior to the uh, introduction of recreational is the degree to which consumers or new consumers of cannabis would gravitate towards specific brands? Because we know that in other sort of vice industries, people have their favorite beers and they can, you know, maybe they dabble with some others, but there's ones that they really like. Obviously, people have loyalty to uh, certain cigarettes that they like. 
Are we seeing any trends play out where there are certain strains or certain brands that people have shown a consistent affinity towards, or is it too early to know? There's a lot of brand hopping in the mid mid range and the lower priced product as people try to figure out what they like from each of the producers. The the premium brand names, the Broken Coasts, the Tantalus Labs, the Supreme Pharmaceuticals or Fire is the what the, the what their ticker is and what people call them. Those premium and flower. Yeah are doing very well. They're, they're selling very well. A lot of uh, social media on the, the, the product. So something like a broken coast, are we, is this like the, the cannabis equivalent of some, you know, IPA microbrew? Yes. They don't put out a lot of product, but the product they put out is, is gorgeous. It's Hmm. broken coast is my favorite. Uh, I've tried tantalus. I haven't tried uh, fire yet, but those, those, those higher end quality ones, and they're a little bit more pricier. They're they're right. plus ten dollars a gram uh, through the retail outlets, so they are more pricey than legacy market or black market. But at the same time, they're head and shoulders above what we're seeing from some of the mass brands that are out there. Do the mass brands also have their sort of premium lines, or are they trying? You know, the sort of the faux indie lines that you see in beer. <laughs> They have them, but there's, as I said, there's a lot of brand hopping right now as people try to figure out what what's good and what's not good. And uh, in, in this day of social media, if you ship a container of stems and seeds, it ends up on the internet and people know it pretty quickly. So if you're if you're trying to build a brand, it's probably not a good idea to build the brand without the quality there first. So let's talk about this side of it, because obviously, as you say, A, there's not enough supply, and B, when there is supply, a lot of times the flower is mediocre and it looks really terrible on social media. Is this, is this, again, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this question of how much is just growing pains, demand strain on the system versus maybe they're not that good at growing at scale, or maybe there's going to be some issue that's going to permanently be an issue uh, with growing at scale. Like, how much of this do you expect to be solved over the coming years? Well, I think a lot of it gets solved through genetics. You you have Mm. to remember, cannabis has been grown in small scale in Canada, indoor, simply because you had to hide it. So going to these mass uh, greenhouses, the genetics are going to take a while to dial in. The genetics have to come along to be able to grow in a, a, a mm. different, less controlled environment than an indoor shop. The indoor, and it's interesting because the three premium brands I mentioned to you are the ones that I see premium. Broken Coast is indoor grown. Uh, Tantalus is a craft greenhouse that's only an acre uh, in size. And Fire is, an, uh, is also a hybrid greenhouse. So Growing in greenhouse, which a lot of people thought, you know what, it, it's not going to work because the genetics weren't there. We're seeing it. So it's a matter of the genetics and really dialing in these large facilities. It it just hasn't been done before, especially in greenhouses on this level. So the genetics will take a while to dial in. Is there growing pains? There's always going to be growing pains. Right. We even hear from the indoor guys that it's a two-year dial-in to get get what they're growing 
perfectly right. Hmm. So you can only be as good as the plant you're growing. So the genetics are really important, but also the genetics need certain things to thrive, to be their best. And if you've taken indoor genetics and you're trying to transfer them into a greenhouse environment, it's going to take you a while to, to dial that in. We know the big, some of the big names, your canopies, auroras, and so on. What's the actual number for how many uh, publicly traded cannabis companies there are in Canada? Wow. Uh, publicly traded. I, I've got to think it's north of 50 right now. Mm-hmm. I think there's 140, 150 licenses. One company can hold multiple licenses like yeah. Canopy and, and Afrium and the like. But there is a there's a glut of companies out there. And we are seeing some of them do well in the first quarter because the wholesale market's still surprisingly strong. So we have some of these big companies, despite their growing capacity, are still buying wholesale to sleeve it to sell out to retail, which is quite shocking given some of the the amounts of inventory we see on their books and what they should be growing versus their square footage. talk about metrics, because as I mentioned in the introduction, your crew, the canalists are known for uh, really top shelf, deep dive analysis into these companies. And you really sort of pick apart the financials. And as you just mentioned, you also tour the facilities. So you really sort of get to know them on an operational scale. For an investor who's looking in this space, and it's worth noting that many of these cannabis companies have had a phenomenal start to the year in the stock market after slumping after the bubble or the boom last year they slumped now they're really uh back on fire what should people look at now to see who's getting traction in the recreational space and who's growing in some manner that you know looks like they're growing efficiently and uh scaling nicely what should people look for in their earnings filings and so forth well, what I look at, and we we run not only peer groups, but we run trends on individual companies. The sales growth is important. The gross margin, they are all over the map these days. The gross margin, I'd like to see gross margin in the companies that I invest in start creeping into the 70% range. Canopy, just to give you an idea, their last quarter, they were at 22%. They dropped from 28 to 22%. And I even think uh, our, the folks over at Aurora dropped a little bit down to 54%. You're not going to get good returns on the amount that they're spending below the line without a strong gross margin. Explain that. So what is going on in the business that is causing gross margins to deteriorate? Well, there's a lot of launching of new facilities. So as those new facilities come on, you might not be matched against your revenue in that quarter. So there might be a lag. Like, for instance, uh, Aurora Sky finally got all their licenses. And we're actually touring Aurora Sky today with video cameras. So I'm actually looking forward to seeing what my colleagues bring back on that. But uh, Aurora Sky just got all their licenses. They've actually planted the flag. They said uh, in uh, for their fourth quarter of this year, which is actually second calendar quarter, they planted the EBITDA flag and said they're going to be EBITDA positive. They've got a hill to climb. 
They're uh, they're running at uh, about minus thirty three million in EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, as I, as I calculate it. And um, it, it's interesting to see will they be able to bridge that gap in order to and adjusted EBITDA just for your audience is one of my favorite metrics. I'm an old school uh, commercial lender. So that's how you get paid back looking at that line. Right. So what you need to, to drive that is you need your sales growth uh, to drive uh, the, the top line. Then you need your gross margin to convert it into how much money after my production cost do I have to pay my SGNA and my uh, op- operating expenses. Just just to give you an idea, last quarter, uh, Canopy did 83 million in net revenue, net of excise tax, and they had 170 million in opex. And the folks over at Aurora uh, also had over 200 percent of their sales was opex. So mm. it's tough to make money when 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 your opex is is outpacing your sales at a two to one level. So do, do these companies, I mean, I'm thinking of like, and it's kind of unrelated from a business model standpoint, but the question, the fundamental issue remains, like thinking about some of the fast growing startups in the US, say like an Uber or a Lyft, and they obviously have spending growth that's much fast, that's incredibly fast and they're losing money, but they say, well, this is all worth it. But then the question that investors face is like, okay, but when is the spending going to slow down? Like, what is the timetable for when you're going to be able to stop investing and actually produce in growing cash flow and growing margins and stuff? Do these companies, and obviously because of the uh, demand and the growing pains, obviously they have rapidly expanding uh, costs and new facilities. Do they have a timetable for when this ends? Or is their view that, look, there's a lot of growth ahead. We're just going to keep investing in the future. And at this point, it's premature to talk about slowing down the expense side. I, I think there's some in each each of those camps. We hunt inflection points. We are looking for when will the break even in sales and the break even for a positive net operating profit and a break even for adjusted EBITDA. We're hunting those inflection points. That's what we do with with our charting and our graphing. We're, we're trying to see when that happens. And we're, we've seen some inflection points last quarter. Do those inflection points become trends? And at the end of the day, like I think Canopy went from last quarter, uh, 700% SG&A or OPEX to sales to 200%. So that, that's a big improvement, all driven by the sales line. So what we're hunting is to see, are the GNAs going to plateau? Are the selling expenses going to start trending down as a percentage of sales? And we're, we're starting to see that in some companies. So those are the things we're hunting. And, the, and we believe investors should be paying attention to those things. Because depending on where you are on your, your investment horizon, I'm 52 years old. I don't want to take as much risk as, say, someone in their early 20s. I don't have the runway to recover versus versus some if I make a mistake at, at my age versus someone who's much younger. So... If you believe in the story that cannabis is going to be everywhere and a global and the like, maybe maybe you're more bullish on that story. But for me, I'm, I'm still concerned about can you produce the, a product at a decent gross margin to cover those those expenses? That that's what I look at. I want something that that I I can believe in 
with respect to their fundamentals. Fundamentals isn't always the answer, but for where I am in my investment uh, horizon, I am looking more for fundamentals than um, I, I'm, I care about the steak, not the sizzle so much. And there, a lot of people are throwing a lot of sizzle out there. For sure. You know, uh, Craig, I've been meaning to ask, um, what's happened to the medical side of the market? Because as everybody knows, a lot of the medical marijuana consumption, probably in the U.S. and Canada, uh, was just recreational consumption in disguise. What is the future of the medical side now that someone can just go into a dispensary without a prescription or anything like that? Well, actually, for, for a lot of the, the bigger companies so far, their medical actually either stayed relatively stable, a little uptick or a little downtick. So we did, we're through our first reporting quarter of full rack, which was October, November, December. So companies like Canopy and Aurora are, are reporting full quarters of that. So I think Canopy went down a little bit and Aurora went down. But also the other thing, and, and here's the crazy thing in Canada, on the medical side, our government is, is charging an excise tax on medical cannabis because, uh, and I think this is a very lazy way of approaching it, they're, they're seeing it, well, if you want to game the system and you want to pay less, well, you'll go into medical. Uh, but what they've tried to do is even the playing field and, and throw an excise tax on it. And there is a lot of medical benefit with respect to cannabis. I use it for my arthritis. I use it for, for sleep as well. And so uh, I shouldn't be that dismissive yeah. of medical consumption and just saying it's recreational in disguise. You'll really get, yeah. get the folks that, that <laughs> use it riled up, quite frankly. But the, yeah, the excise tax that our, that our government has, has put on it is, is crazy. And, and you asked, like, what's the part of the problem? And I, I said there's a lot of finger pointing. These excise stamps, which are about uh, half an inch wide by, by an inch long, are by province. And every producer, every licensed producer who ships it out has to put one on all these disparate packages, some pouches, tubes, bottles, boxes. And they didn't get the uh, excise stamps till about two weeks before REC kicked off. And there was no glue on them. So they, all these companies designed all their packaging and then we're given these excise stamps that that have to go on the opening. And when the product's open, it still has to stay. It'll tear, but it has to stay affixed. So that that's our government helping out. I, I, I was touring Afria yesterday, and they are hand-sticking excise stamp stickers on the pouches, on the bottles. And, and that that is just not efficient. But because all the packaging is different and these stamps have to be affixed and have to stay affixed after opening, mind you, torn, it's a silly, silly procedure in this day and age, in, in my mind. But the government wants their, their share and the excise stamps go on it. It's very, very colonial, colonial British, I think. Craig, I remember the last time we chatted, you used the phrase to describe the government's role in this. You said you have to put yourself in the position of a greedy provincial finance minister to understand both their role as a middleman, but also their uh, desire to maximize taxation revenue. What kind of taxation revenue are they seeing? Are they happy with it? And how is it uh, impacting expected profits within the industry? Well, you know what? I'm glad that resonated with you because it certainly is the case. Uh, between the uh, federal and the provincial taxes, I think they're taking 40 to 50 percent of the the net purchase price into taxes in, in one form or, or another, whether it's sales tax, excise tax or what have you. 
the the government's role as a middleman, the provincial government, it, it is slapstick comedy. If you look at Ontario, <laughs> we had a liberal government when C-45, which was the legislation, was coming out uh, provincially in Ontario. And they said, we're going to open 40 stores. We'll run them ourselves. They probably got three on the drawing board before they lost power. In come the conservatives. The conservatives take a look and say, you know what, we're going to open this up to retail, private retail. We're not going to own the stores. Everyone was very, very happy about that. Then the conservative government looked around and looked at uh, uh, Quebec with uh, their operating hours or their operating days being cut to uh, Thursday through Sunday and uh, and Alberta stopping giving new retail licenses because the, the store shelves were, were empty. So the government had the idea that they were going to do a lottery system for 25 retail licenses. And this wasn't a vetted licensing system uh, for the lottery. They actually took anybody's $75 who wanted to put in a, a application, and there were 25 winners drawn. More than half of them are sole proprietors, and they cannot, under the uh, rules of the lottery, change their ownership for over a year. So we have 25 retail stores coming to Ontario, supposedly by April 1st. But the government has botched it so much bad that these aren't seasoned retailers coming into the market. And the big LPs are trying to figure out their way around the regs so they can partner with these. But this is the type of rollout that, that we've gotten in Ontario, which is the biggest province. And actually, uh, November to December, the purchases, purchases of cannabis went down in Ontario despite, despite wow. the rollout. And... Alberta is doing better because they have more retail establishments because the new buyer wants to go in. They want to take a look at things. They want to talk to people going on the Internet to right. buy something that you've never bought before. Um, that's a different different end of the stick, quite frankly. So so when you talk about greedy provincial uh, pro, uh, provincial finance ministers, it, it is very, very true that not only are they taking taxes, but they're really not adding a lot of value into the equation. Craig, I, I feel like we should just schedule you on the podcast like every six months or so, because obviously a big change between now and the uh, pre-rec uh, era. But it just feels like because there's still so much in flux in terms of business models and distribution models and scaling up that uh, we should just regularly check in with you. Really appreciate you coming on. Got to have you back again. Uh, hopefully, Tracy will be here uh this time and uh thank you very much for joining if, if you don't mind i'd love to plug our youtube channel if you don't mind as as Go we have uh we've gone to a, a paywalled subscription service for some of our work but we have a lot of our work is still uh, open source and our youtube channel has so much investor information in there if you're interested to see what a indoor grow op is from soup to nuts we we have a documentary on broken coast and uh we're hoping to do some new, new work and maybe we can invite uh uh, Joe to come and play his guitar and uh, sit in on one of our podcasts one of these days. I'd love, I'd love to do that some, sometime. Thank you very much, and I will as soon as I'm out of the studio, I'm going to go check out your YouTube. Page. I appreciate it, Craig Wiggins. He's one of the canalists. Definitely check out their stuff.
And that does it for this episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can follow my co-host on Twitter, Tracy Alloway. She's at Tracy Alloway. Definitely follow Craig on Twitter. He's at GoBlueCDN. And be sure to follow our producer, Topher Forges. He's at T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. 